I hope you like my uh, makeshift recording studio, Jim. This is where it's done. But someday I'll get a real studio. Right now, yeah. So it's an impressive uh, setup, so, you know, it's, yeah, it's better than what I got. I'm, I'm just in my home office. I'm, you know, apologies if there's an echo. I don't have any sound canceling. <laughs> oh, that's fine. That's fine. Yeah, I put up some, I put up some around my office, but this is what I've been working out. Originally, I made this like a guy's area of the home. I'm like, I need to claim one part of my house to have. So I turned it into a gym office. But now it's my nice. recording studio. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, we can get started. I, uh... First of all, obviously a big fan of M1 Finance. I've been a fan of it for a long time. Uh, I have lots of questions about it, but before getting into that, I wanted to see if you'd give me some background on yourself, how you got into an investing. Uh, was it was it something that started like early on in life? I get asked all the time, so I'm curious how you got into it. Yeah, for sure. So I definitely did get started early. And so uh, I think my foray into it was sort of in conjunction with a fifth grade stock market school project. And so we had to do a, you know, research a company, present on it. And then we also had a sort of fake brokerage account where we managed a certain amount of dollars and, you know, put it in and whoever won over the course of three months won some trophy or something like that. Uh, sort of in conjunction with that, my parents sort of said, hey, if this interests you at all, you can invest real money. Uh, so they set up a brokerage account in my name and I did that under the purview of my parents. And I was immediately captivated by it. Um, so like the notion of researching a stock, making a qualitative and quantitative assessment on it, placing a high conviction bet. If you're right, you make money. If you're wrong, you lose money. Just like combined all the things that I was interested in. Um, so, you know, I definitely got started early and, and uh, did it for middle school, high school, into college and, and beyond. That's pretty early. That's, uh, that's sooner than me. My parents were into real estate investing. So I got a lot of exposure to that. My dad didn't do quite as much in the stock market, but he did have a Schwab account. He showed me some stuff there, but I got started earlier 20s. So a lot later than you. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I don't know if I was coming up with any profound thoughts in my you know fifth and sixth grade class, but you know, definitely had the, the career, like the progression of more informed investor as time went on. Yeah. No, that's the same thing that I've found is, and I see a lot when people get into it, they're like, wow, this is actually really interesting. This isn't boring. Uh, you know, finance is supposed to be boring and not a fun subject, but when you get into investing, it can be really fun. Uh, so I was wondering, I read that you started M1 Finance when you were 25. Is that accurate? That's correct. Where did you get the idea for this? Because I don't know a lot of 25-year-olds going out and starting brokerages. Yeah, you know, in retrospect, I might have uh, started my entrepreneurial foray with like an easier industry, but <laughs> you live, you learn. Um, it, it was really in the management of my own money. Uh, so, you know, did the middle school, high school, into college, sort of pro pro progress as an investor. And it was looking at the investment tools that were available in the marketplace and just being relatively underwhelmed with what was out there that. Uh, you know, personal finance is something that every single person has to do. They have to manage their own money. And I didn't think that the consumer applications in personal finance were at par with the consumer applications that you use in everyday life. And so, you know, you pick your favorite service and I think they're just leaps and bounds above what was offered from the, the financial service industry. 
And I also didn't think that there was a lot of do-it-yourself tools that were geared towards long-term investors rather than trading platforms. And so, you know, M1 was really the, the manifestation of how I wanted to manage my own money from an investment standpoint, but then moving more broadly into all of my personal finances. And so, you know, that's that's generally the progression the, the company has taken was uh, started with a personal need and then uh, a little bit of hubris and naivete that, you know, led to start the company. Yeah, you get in there and... I, 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 I'm curious because my, uh, my first impression of it was the same. It was totally different than other brokers. So like I said, I'd, I'd use Schwab like, you know, uh, five years ago, I've seen it with my dad's account and it's just really archaic looking. And then you get to a service like M1 Finance and I'm blown away by how easy and simplistic everything is with it, uh, how, clearly, how clearly it's laid out. I'm curious if the technology side because what you're doing is you're starting a finance company, a fintech technology side. Was this something where you're primarily interested in the finance side and the technology side just came along with it? Or you know, was it something where you were also interested in starting a tech company? Uh, it was definitely a combination of both. I think in some sense, M1 like perfectly mirrored my interests. And so from the investing side, I do think finance firms have massively overcomplicated what investing needs to be. And in some sense, it's almost just an artifact of the way that the finance industry was built up, that it just, you know, it has its days of like the open outcry and buying shares and, you know, trading in sixteenths of dollars and things like that. And, you know, there's a much simpler way to do it. And in some, like, I do enjoy the the act of simplifying things pretty dramatically. And so I think it's way easier to understand, hey, I want 5% of my money in this investment than I want to have this order type of this security at this price that you know, translates to this market value. You know, there, there's just a lot of things that you can do to, to simplify the nature. And then I also, I really like the notion of automating things. And so the ability to sort of do more with less and how can you make a decision once and then have software do what it's good at and just have it just continually power and automate the sort of administrative you know, notion or the, the manual entry of various things. And so I think it was sort of combining those two things of how can you simplify it and then how can you automate it? And, it, you know, um, and then there's just general business intrigue of hiring a team, managing them, operating in a, a you know, complex environment. And so you know, it, it was just a whole bunch of different interests that uh, yeah. combined into one thing. No, for sure. That's a lot to take on. Uh, I, I'm curious if you, uh, so you look like you had the vision of it, but did you just go out and find people that had the technology experience to do it or how did that work? Uh, yeah. So, you know, um, starting a brokerage, it's, it's not one of those things that a couple people in a garage can put together. There's just, you know, a really heavy amount of regulatory compliance work and you have to be well capitalized from the the you know financial perspective, and so we were able to raise a good amount of money early, and so that was able to. It was really a founded team that started M1, um, and so you know I had the the vision, I had um, you know the the finance background, and a, enough computer science to be dangerous enough to uh, to call out my engineers when I know that they're lying. Um, <laughs> but you know it, it was really a founding team, and so we had a. Uh, operations lead, a compliance lead, a product lead, and an engineering lead sort of from the get-go. Okay. Yeah, that's what I was curious about because I've worked on, you know, a background as a programmer. There's not something you could jump into as creating a brokerage without assembling the whole team from the start. So uh, I do, so you just reached 1 billion in asset center management. Is that right? Yep. Uh, Like towards the start of this year, 
Um, I'm interested to know, out of all the things that you go through when you're creating this, when you're dealing with competitors, trying to stay ahead of everything, you know, all the customer service, everything that's involved with it, what is the most challenging aspect of getting to that point, getting a billion? Um, yeah, there, there's definitely a lot. And so, you know, it, it's hard to distill it down to the one specific thing. And, you know, if, if I sort of like high level categorized it as two different things, I think one is exactly what you mentioned, that there is a incredible amount of work that goes in to support everything that we do. And the end customer only sees, you know, maybe 10% of it. So the, the interface, the design is really just like the front end skin of all the work that we've done behind the scenes to, you know, have the technology to support it, have the regulatory environment to support it, the financials and the like. And so, you know, I, I do think that there is a, we, we probably did, you know, spend 10 X the amount of time on things that the customer never sees to, to get that one piece of feature or software that they ultimately do see. And so, you know, just the, the breadth of things that you have to do is, is difficult. And then I think the, notion of going from a idea to something that people trust their money with is, um, you know, it's a high hurdle to, to go over. And so, you know, the, the first dollar that we got from the random internet user and being saying, Hey, we are a credible service and we are a superior platform to Ameritrade, E-Trade, Fidelity, Schwab, and getting them to put their hard earned dollars, bring over their brokerage assets, just building up that credibility and trust was a long process. And it's still very much an ongoing process. Um, you know, the, the nice fact is we now have well over a billion bucks, 150,000 funded users using the platform. They have become, you know, our, our salespeople and advocates sort of saying, hey, this is a great service that you can trust. And, and you know, I manage my money on it. You can manage your money as well. Yeah, that was one of my, my questions is because I shared them even before starting YouTube or anything like that. I shared it with different family members and stuff. And the question that always came up right at the start was this kind of unknown company that you're putting a lot of money into, you're putting money into. And there's other companies, there's the Vanguards and Schwabs that have their name very well known and trillions of dollars in assets under management. For people that are still in that category of you know, I have a lot of different people that come and view the channel and they'll say, where did this com company come from? So what do you say to people that are like, why would I trust my money with a smaller brokerage? You know, it's a startup company when I have options like Vanguard and Schwab. What, what is the, what do you tell people that have that well, concern? If, if we had the perfect answer, we'd be at, you know, the trillions of dollars in, in assets rather than the billion. Um, you know, in, in some sense, Vanguard and Charles Schwab started at some point, right? You know, there was the 1970s, and in some sense, they were facing those exact same questions for Morgan Stanley and Merrill Lynch. And, you know, in some sense, they offered a fundamentally better product, better price, and built up that credibility, brand, trust, and the like over incredibly long periods of time. And I think M1 has to do the same thing. It's, it's not something that we can, you know, flip a switch and have all the credibility and trust that people have built up over, over decades. Um, I do think that there is a huge benefit to being new versus old that, you know, you were talking about Charles Schwab having uh, sort of archaic uh, systems. And it is one of those things of some pe people at some point are going to have to reckon with what am I willing to pay a premium for a like worse service just because it has a better brand name? Or am I willing to go with the, the new service who is, you know, really innovating, pushing the ball forward, creating a better service product, lower price um, and the like. And so I think it's, you know, M1 has the opportunity to build that trust over incredibly long periods of time. And it's really like every interaction we have with the customer is a 
opportunity to to build that and it's it's going to take time i think the people who sign on now get a you know th- th- there is more of a i don't want to say a leap of faith because you know we have all the security and regulatory environment you're insured and protected but you know you are more trusting than you for m1 than you have to be with a, a charles schwab i think the sort of benefit is they get a better investing experience and i think over time um more people will, will come to realize that yeah i think that's the same that's the same type of path I followed. When I uh, started, it was two years back, so it was even less known than it is now. A lot has happened over the past two years. And that was my biggest concern, too, was, all right, I'm switching from one that's like a little bit more well-known to one that's not as well-known. So I do research on the company and see all the insurance and everything, deposit a little bit of money, see how it functions, make sure I'm comfortable with it. And then after getting used to it for a while, you know, it builds trust over time. But... Uh, I think it will be the same thing. It's kind of a snowball effect. The bigger it gets, the more inherent trust you have with it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And yeah, we, we see that behavior from a lot of our customers of they're willing to trial it out, but they, you know, deposit money. They want to withdraw money to make sure that it comes back, you know, and it is the sort of snowball and compounding nature. And, you know, it, it, it's a lot easier now, now that we have all the users, the reviews, the Reddit forums, the YouTube channels and, and the like than it was in the, the early stages. I'm sure. Uh, yeah, I want to talk about the coronavirus. I'm interested to know about this. <laughs> Obviously, it's changed the way businesses have run, um, and people are working from home. Everything is, is changing. I'm interested in a couple aspects of this. One of them is the effects it's had, if you know any insights on the market and user behavior, specifically with M1. Is there any, any trends that you see with people? Did they move to cash? Did they sell out? Uh, was there any stocks that they went to or anything like that? Yeah, for sure. So um, in some sense, now that we have the 150,000, we do have a broad base. And so people do a whole bunch of different things. And so, you know, but to to generalize before March, when, you know, everything sort of started being really serious with the the coronavirus, uh, users held about 6% of their assets in cash. And now it's currently about 10%. So people did move up, but it wasn't a huge fundamental switch to cash. And so there is a little bit of a pullback a risk aversion of people moving to a safer, more stable uh, asset. New users went through the roof. Um, so we're, we were signed up more than 2x uh, the amount of users in March than we did in February. Um, so, you know, it, it's people were looking at it. The market was top of the news, the the drop. People were looking to, to get invested for the first time. Deposits went up two and a half x. Um, so more people were investing and then withdrawals went up about 30 percent. So, you know, you did have like a, a broad mix of what people were doing. That being said, the the biggest behavior that M1 users were experiencing were, hey, this is, you know, the market's 30% cheaper. It's at prices I couldn't, I would have had a bot, you know, purchase two years ago to, yeah. to invest. And so, you know, the, the long-term orientation of our user base made, like, made it so that it was much more people adding to their portfolios than withdrawing. Yeah, I think... I think that's right. I can see a couple dynamics. One of them is definitely the news. There's lots of content creators that never make stock market videos. All of them are making stock market videos now. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm sure that gives it a bump. It's in the top of the news every single day. So I see that side of it. And then I also notice, I don't know the age demographics of M1 users, but it seems like they are more long-term focused. And it seems like people that are starting off their investment journey are wanting the market to come down rather than they're frustrated if it goes like it's going up right now. And a lot of users are very frustrated that the market hasn't come down a huge portion so they can 
start off their investment journey at a, at a lower price point. So some of that makes no, sense. No, for sure. You know, M1 is definitively an investing platform, not a trading platform. It is incredibly bad if you want to buy at 10 a.m. and sell at 11 a.m. and sort of, you know, play that price game and sort of say, hey, you know, I'm willing to buy it and sell it to someone else at a higher price and try to predict those moves. I think that personally stems from, I don't think that's entirely knowable. And, you know, even if you want to do that, there's fantastic tools out there, you know, go have fun. It's, uh, it's enjoyable. I, you know, I don't know if it's the best wealth creation tool. For, for M1, it's definitely built towards the benefit to owning these securities is in the ownership. And, you know, it's, it's sort of the Warren Buffett style quote of you'd be happy owning it if the stock market shut down for five years and, you know, you, yeah. you never price on it again. And so, you know, it, it, it definitely is your long term oriented, your systematic investing. You want to own these securities or investments over long periods of time. You want to systematically contribute to it. And it is something that you would rather pay a lower price than a higher price. And so, you know, in some sense, a lower price is an opportunity um, rather than, you know, uh, something to be worried about. No, that's very much the type of investing I talk about. So it's not, I I get a lot of uh, angry people because I talk about day trading. (laughs) I'm not too huge of a fan of it, but people can do that strategy. I'm not good at it. I'm not going to try it. M1 fits the use case that I have a lot more. I'm interested, if you had an ideal user, you know, you talk about long-term investing. Was it crafted like for any particular type of ideal uh, demographic or type of user? Yeah, I think we probably build it more for like a psychographic persona. Um, you know, how you think about your investments more than a demographic of how old you are or, or the like. But you know, I think there's really two big things that um, sort of fit with that. The first is the like long-term versus short-term or, you know, investor versus trader. And so, you know, we definitely are, hey, you are managing your finances for the next 5, 10, 15, 20, 40 years and really trying to take, hey, you need to prudently manage, systematically add to it over time and have that long-term horizon rather than, you know, Monday to next Wednesday. You know, we, we sort of think that that is sort of unknowable and four years from now when you look back, you, you don't know what the correct price was on that Monday versus Thursday, but you can sort of say, hey, a company is undervalued or it you know has a competitive advantage that will last for long periods of time. So the, the time horizon is one thing, and we, we definitely appeal towards the investor, not the trader. And then I'd say the second thing is you have to be engaged with your finances. And so this like sort of manifests in a couple different ways. One, you want to use a platform to do it yourself versus work with an advisor. And so those are like very different mentalities of, you know, hey, I don't want to touch this with a 10 foot pole versus, you know, I enjoy this stuff. I like reading uh, Seeking Alpha or Yahoo Finance or watching CNBC. And, you know, they're reading the Wall Street Journal and having a, um, you know, interest in what's going on in the world, the economy and business and the like. Um, That also leads you to have a perspective in what you want to own. Um, even if you're sort of that bogglehead, low cost, three Vanguard portfolio, you know, it's, it's a mentality and you want to make your choices rather than give it to someone else to to manage. Right. Um, so, you know, I think it's like the long term nature and then the I want to, you know, manage it myself rather than, um, you know, give it off to, to someone else. Those two things, I think M1 becomes the, the premier tool. So it's, you know, all about low-cost, automatic, systematic investing in a portfolio of your choosing. Okay. That's what I, that's what I figure. It would be, you know, trying to use it as a quick day trading tool uh, isn't the best use case for it, but 
Yeah. It doesn't fit the style of investing that I'm interested in doing. And I think most of the people that view my content are, are pretty long-term focused as well. Uh, back to the coronavirus. I have another question on this. So the investing behavior is one thing. What is your impression you're getting out of, you know, generally speaking, you're running a company, you know, you're the CEO of a company, you might have a little bit of a different insight into what, how it's affecting businesses, the type of efforts you're taking. Uh, do you have any insights on in what you think this will be in terms of like, you know, how this is going to affect small businesses long term or short term? I know it's a lot of unknown, so I'm asking a lot there, but yes, for sure. No, you know, it, I think it actually affects the day to day of M1 less. And so in like the pure micro sense, how we run the company, not that much changes. We're a relatively new company. You know, we've been around four years. Our focus is just continuing to build the best personal finance platform that we possibly can, um, ship new features, add capability and the like. And, you know, we, we sort of say, hey, people are going to have to manage their money now, a year from now, five years from now, 10 years from now, and they're going to want the best solution. And so the best thing we can do is be, you know, sort of the world's going to go through a bunch of ups and downs during that entire process. Let's just build the best thing that we possibly can. And so, you know, I don't think it has changed our day to day that much. That being said, like, you know, um, everyone's playing like armchair economists and epidemiologists and, yeah, and no, you know, this no whole thing. I think like the, the the hope is in two years, the health issue isn't that much of an effect, right? We either have yeah. treatments or a vaccine or a cure, you know, something where, you know, the, the, the health consequences, um, it, it's more like January than it is like April. Um, and then I think it's, you know, there's going to be a huge demand shock over the next two years. And it's whether there is a significant amount of fiscal and monetary stimulus to sort of uh, sort of support that flow, I think that's going to determine how big of a, a shock it is. Um, you know, I, I think the hope is we get over it sooner rather than later. There's a whole bunch of new fresh liquidity in the market. Things go back to normal and, uh, you know, things progress in a quicker amount of time. I do think it, it, it gets back to the short term versus long term. You know, I think prepare for a bad year. I think in three years, things are going to be better than they are now. And so, you know, if you're thinking long term enough, I don't think it should change your investment style all that much. Right. No, that's, uh, yeah, the, the Fed and the government's definitely offering a lot of liquidity right now. So I think the same thing, you know, it, it's definitely, nobody knows what direction the market's going this year. Uh, it's very difficult to guess. Having it go up right now is pretty surprising for a lot of people. So we'll see where it goes. It doesn't change my plan. I think a lot of the, the viewers and people that watch my content, they're still focused five years in the future on most of their investments. So it's like if it does drop down, we'll try to invest more. Uh, no, for sure. And just, I mean, with the short-term timing, it going up and going down, it's almost like in retrospect, it's hard to predict. Of you know, If you had the news ahead of time, what was going to happen you couldn't determine what the, the market was going to do. And so the notion that you can't, you know, with all the facts, determine what the market's going to do in any given month, the notion that you can predict it moving forward, I think is a fool's errand. And so, you know, especially in the short term, and you know, but I, it, it does get back to in the long term, I think things revert more to their fundamentals. And those are things you can analyze and have conviction about. Right. Yeah. You could have, if we went back to 2019, you could have all the Wall Street Journal headlines of 2020 
and still have no clue what direction the market's going to go. For sure. And, uh, you know, similar things to you could have had the, the job unemployment numbers the night before. And every single one of those coming out, I predict the market going the opposite way that it, you know, actually did. So, it, you know, it, it is a. Uh, to predict what the world, like a random thing's gonna do in a short thing, I think it's a lot of wet finger in the air estimates as opposed to any sort of uh, scientific like precision that you're gonna have. Okay, well, no, I agree with that. I, I have a question, do you have any, um, do M1 Finance users buy any specific type of stocks, any type of uh, equities or, is there anything that you think is unique to investors of the platform or is it just, representative of the larger investment world? Um, we do have our fair share of dividend investors as a result of some of the content that people, uh, you know, I'm may, sure. may I take hundred percent responsibility. <laughs> that. Yeah. Um, I mean, broadly speaking, uh, about half of our AUM is in ETFs and then the other half is in individual stocks. And so that's the breakdown um, for the stocks. When you go to individual stocks, it roughly does correspond to their overall market cap with probably like a little bit of a tilt towards, you know, consumer brand known names versus the, you know, company that makes some infrastructure widget that, um, you know, is a huge, massive company, but few have heard of. Um, and so, you know, we, we probably resemble the, the broader market more than, um, you know, having, we definitely don't like, you know, there are some other fintechs where it's, penny stocks and, you know, the yeah. stocks that you would cater to millennials. We, we, we definitely don't have that. That's Robin Hood. I'll say it. You don't have to say it. I'll say it for you. <laughs> no, uh, that makes sense. I would guess that it would be more of the big, uh, big cap, like well-known brands type of thing. Uh, I do have, um, so I'm curious, you were able to, I read different blog posts that you put out. Like I said, I, I joined M1 like over two years ago. And I remember reading some of the posts that you wrote then, which were somewhat unknown, but you said that the future of finance is free. Uh, at the time, M1 just moved to becoming completely free. And that's what part of made me skeptical about it. Normally <laughs> in, in the financial world, when I see something where it's good, too good to be true, it rings a lot of like uh, just bells of this is uh, red flags. You know, I should be concerned about this. It's too good to be true. But you guys were one of the first ones to go free, offered fractional shares. And you talked about how the future of finance is free. And that was a prediction that you said that pretty much every other company is going to start offering free shares and that they'll start offering fractional shares. They'll start moving into this stuff. At the time, that was not the general consensus. So I remember lots of uh, different people in the financial world saying that the bigger brokerages do not need to move to becoming free that they have their client base. They make a lot of money charging trades, uh, fees on trades. So you were able to predict that. I'm wondering if you have any other insights or things that you think is going to be the future of the, the different trends brokers go through, generally speaking. Um, yeah, no, I, th I, I think there's two big um, things that are going to sort of be what most financial service firms are, are moving to. The first I've already talked about a little bit is automation. Um, so, you know, how can you make it easier to do, 
do more with less. And so, you know, I think every single big brokerage is still built around the manual trade. You know, I want this amount of dollars or this amount of shares, this order type, click a button, place it. And then when you want to buy the same security next week with, you know, or every two weeks with your paycheck, go do the exact same thing. And I think there's going to be a ton with, you know, tell a software platform once, here's how I want my money managed, and then have it do the administrative or the manual tasks in the background. And you know, sort of let a computer do what it's better at, let you make your decisions, but really have the you know software and the automation take over for the, the mundane, boring stuff. So I think automation is huge, and I, I think that's across investing. I think that's across you know your budgeting and cash flow management and your borrowing, just everything that you you can do. It's it's software can automate your personal finances, sort of akin to a team of three people working in the background to sort of optimize your finances. Um, and then the, the second, I think that there's going to be, I think that there's been a big wave of sort of holistic solutions to point solutions. And so, you know, like you used to do everything with a Chase or a Wells Fargo, then you had, you know, an app that did one thing. And I think you're moving back to the, the platforms and the things where it sort of integrates all of your personal finances. And I think that there's benefits to doing more of your personal finances on one platform. And so in the, in the M1 sphere, the invest borrow uh, relationship is probably the, the best example of that, of if we you know have your assets on the platform, so if you invest with M1, we can let you borrow for cheaper. And so, you know, it's sort of a symbiotic relationship where we can help you manage one side of your balance sheet better if we have the other. And there's a benefit to the integration where the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. I think the same thing happens with, you know, we have M1 spend coming out and, you know, there is a, if we have your cash flows of, you know, receiving your income, how you spend money, can we provide analytics so that your investments are better, so that your borrowing is better, so that we can lower your cost of borrowing, help you invest more? And I think there's there's a whole bunch of benefits to the integration, and I think that's going to be the next wave of of finance as well. Okay, so so okay, so you're uh, integrating it with these different type of services. Having the I like having the line of credit, like having knowing even knowing that I have access to it at any given time to a that cheap of a, a margin rate is pretty incredible. Um, I'm wondering, so what are your plans? If you know that these other big brokers, they're going to start moving into the sphere, right? Just mm-hmm. like they did with uh, fractional shares, just like they did with free trades. And one thing I always see whenever a legacy brokerage comes out with a feature that was formerly exclusive to M1, there will be all the online comments of people saying, this is the end of M1. Now they're offering fractional shares, right? You get that type of talk. We see them as well. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure, you, I'm sure you're aware of it. Uh, what do you do to stay ahead of the, ahead of the curve with it? Yeah, I think it's, um, it's important to re- realize that M1 has been around for, you know, publicly facing for three and a half years. Um, you know, a Fidelity has been around for 40, right? You know, and... Fidelity spends, I don't know, a billion bucks a year on their technology, their interface and the like, and it's still bad, you know? And, and, and in some sense, I, for, for me, it's less about like the, the feature set right now, and it's more about the pace of innovation. And so if M1 has been able to build a digital automated brokerage for free, a low cost line of credit, you know, lending facility, a digital banking service, all in three and a half years and, you know, on a, you know, one one thousandth of the capital that they spend on a you know, weekly basis. 
I'm more encouraged of what M1 is going to look like in the next year, two years from now, three years from now. And I, I, I sort of refuse to believe that, you know, how people manage their money in 2020, like the, the feature set is done, the user platforms are done. We're not going to, you know, expand and benefit and, you know, progress over time. And I just think M1 has a culture of more rapid feature development, feature release, improving the product platform, the integration uh, across everything. And I think you're going to uh, continue to see that expand and accelerate over time. And I think that's what gives me comfort of the big brokerages. They're just slow moving. You know, I, I, I from, you know, time equals zero now, who do I think is going to have the better platform in three years? I think M1 by leaps and bounds. Yeah, well, I, I noticed some things. Uh, the technology stack with it is a lot more modern than a lot of the other brokerages are using. Uh, even looking at the security of it, like some of the older brokerages have uh, their their type of two-factor authentication is only through text message, and M1 will have like a Google Authenticator and new, newer forms of uh, authentication. So I think, yeah, uh, for me it makes sense that a newer brokerage with a new, you don't have all the legacy updates you have to do every time you implement a new feature. So... Um, well, I'm, I'm curious. I have about 40%, give or take, of my viewership lives outside of the United States. So a lot of them are in Canada and Europe. And I get asked all the time from people that are viewing me using M1 Finance, and they're very jealous of the brokerage. They want to <laughs> use it. So I want to ask on behalf of them, how do we get it into their hands? How do we get them to be able to use it? What are the holdups hold with it? For sure. I would love nothing more than to, to open it up and offer it to anybody and everybody that could use it. Uh, and it, we, we get the same thing for foreign nationals and then even people under 18, you know, we, we, it's a pretty cumbersome process to open up a, uh, you know, a custodial account and the like. And so it, there, there's a lot of people who we would love to serve that we're unable to. The issue comes down to regulatory more than anything that uh, any brokerage or financial service firm has an obligation for uh, like it's called customer identification, know your customer, and then anti-money laundering rules. And the second that you have foreign, you know, money coming from foreign banks into the U.S. financial system, it just adds a whole bunch more regulatory complexity that we have to invest in to support, to monitor, to you know, meet all the requirements. And so there's just a uh, capital investment that M1 needs to make to be legally, you know, in, in good standing with our regulators. And so that is the the holdup. It's something that we want to get to over time. And so I think there's probably going to be two stages of it. One is allowing foreign nationals to invest in U.S. companies on U.S. markets. And that is, you know, having all the regulatory compliance stuff to monitor the money coming in from overseas. Um, and then the second would be to launch it on you know, their home soil. And that is going to be a much lengthier process that uh, securities rules are different, exchanges are different. Um, so that's really rebuilding M1 from scratch, uh, you know, to, to like be on their exchange. I hope we get there at some point, but you know, it's probably many years away. Yeah, well, when they all have their individual regulations, I'm sure it adds a lot of complexity to it. For sure. I mean, little things like, you know, when money comes in, how long does it take to clear? What is your settlement period? And or uh, U.S. has like pattern day trading rules where you have to. 
I don't know what UKs are, but I'm guessing they're different. You know, so you know, every single locale has their own securities practice that we would have to, uh, like, you know, fine tune the the software to support. Well, I'll. Uh, they'll at least know that I asked. Okay. <laughs> And, and, and we are working towards it. I wish I had a better ta- timeline then. Um, you know, we're, 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 we're thinking about it. I'm always, I always feel bad. I'm like, I'm sorry. It is awesome, but I'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> that you're not able to use it right now. Uh, I have another question about the platform. This is one that actually has some controversy. So uh, the way the M1 measures performance is money-weighted return. A lot of people think it's confusing. They wonder, why doesn't M1 use like time-weighted return, total return? Uh, I get questions about that all the time. Normally, I don't pay attention too much to the exact percentage return that I'm doing, but uh, I'm interested to know the, the reasons for that. Yeah, so um, in some sense, the reason that there are multiple types of return, so there's you know simple return, which is what you invested versus what you have now, there's you know return taking into effect your cost basis. There's money weighted. There's time weighted. The fact that there are multiple sort of showcases that there's no one perfect solution for it. You know if if it was as obvious of just use this one, everyone would understand it. We would absolutely do that. And so in some in some sense, the the money weighted is a trade off. We know it's not perfect. We actually do think it's the best for a whole host of reasons and. One of the, the biggest reasons is a lot of those other returns start becoming, will be more, you know, just as if not more confusing as people are adding and withdrawing money and switching investments. So, you know, in the easiest example of, you know, the, the total return, you invest 10,000, it goes up to 20,000, you then withdraw 10,000. You now have invested a net amount of zero, you have, you know, $10,000 of gains. Yeah. What is your return? It's sort of an infinite return. Um, cost basis gets thrown off as you know we're, we're selecting which tax lot to um, you know sell that minimizes your taxes, and so uh, you know you 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 can show your unrealized gains, but then you have these whole baked in realized gains that get lost anytime you transfer security. So if you go from uh, security A to security B, does do you reestablish your cost basis and sort of say, hey, all the gains or losses you had in Security A go away? Time-weighted, same thing of, you know, make a lot of money, pull it out, then you have a bad time. Like, things just get thrown off. And so money-weighted is, we think, the most accurate representation of how your money on the platform is actually doing, you know, based on when you deposited, what is the rate of return based on the amount of money in the platform. Um, it can lead to some counterintuitive results, but we think it's the the it's the best of the worst. I, I do think over time we will move to the ability to toggle uh, a lot of that stuff. Um, but, you know, uh, for, for now it's, um, yeah, we, we, we wish there was one perfect return metric. That's not from what I've looked at, but yeah, I, I, that's one I get asked a lot. Just because I think other brokers use them differently. And when people are used to one, they're like, why does this one use a different one? But other brokers also use different ones too. Like there's different ones that every other broker uses. So uh, yeah, and, you know, mo- most brokerages will simply do like simple gain or loss or based on cost basis. And the the really tough thing there is uh, I, I have to be careful about mentioning specific security yeah. names just uh, for compliance reasons. But you know, you buy ten thousand dollars of security A, you double the money, 
you then sell everything and invest in Securities B. On most other brokerage firms, they then say you have a net gain or loss of zero. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, it's it, it gets erased anytime you switch your investment and stuff like that. And I think we would have as many, you would get as many questions if we did that. Uh, okay. on, so, <laughs> yeah, no, I'm sure. Uh, well, that's pretty much all I have. I think from here, I want to know what, uh, let's say that you have, you know, a, a thousand engineers, you have infinite money. What is the outlook? What is the end goal, the end vision of M1 Finance? What are what are the things that you're working on accomplishing? Yeah, I mean, for us, it's really just building the premier personal finance platform. And so I think we're, we're best known for investing, but we sort of say, hey, that's one component of personal finance. It's one half of your balance sheet. We want to make a you know premier platform for all of your personal finances. So your investments, your borrowings, how you spend and receive money. And so that's the, the three pillars that we've attracted. And it's really about going deeper in each. And so, you know, uh, investing, there's better return metrics, better finding investment opportunities, um, more options for, for how you do that. Borrowing, right now it's all secured line of credit. We'll likely move into unsecured, but always focused on m- lowest cost, most flexible terms. The spend product, how can you earn more on cash? How can you earn more when you spend? Um, how can we give you automated budgeting and cash flow analysis tools and the like? And so it's really about building that that holistic suite where it's integrated, the whole, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts and it's automated. So you're, you're really setting up the parameters. Here's how I want my money managed and then the, the platform is taking over. Okay, well, that sounds good to me. I like all the changes that you make. I've- I'm happy with most of them. I like the way the platform's going. Uh, is there anything else you want to share with people? Any any other message you want to get out while we have you here? Um, I think, you know, we are uh, big readers and we, we watch your YouTube channel. We like listen to, to user feedback all the time. We watch, you know, read the, the comments on Reddit. Um, we're working on improving every aspect of the, the application. I think we have a lot of big audacious plans to to improve um you know i wish we could move faster i wish we could meet every need uh that we we do but we do hear the the feedback we do love the feedback it informs our um how we develop and what features we prioritize and so the more feedback the better uh even when it isn't always the most positive you know i i I can give you a confident uh answer that we are definitely working on all the issues that uh people come up with that's good to hear that's good to hear well hey i appreciate brian Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Appreciate you having me on. Sure. Thanks for listening, guys. We'll see you.